All right. Well, welcome to our Facebook Live people, and so good to be with all of you as our new year continues, our second message of the new year, and it's going to be somewhat of a continuation of last week. You know, how does one thing flow into the next? Last week we studied Psalm 119, and how we discovered how out of uh, the 22 stanzas of eight verses each, how many times the words for God's word, like law and precept, testimony, commandment, etc., that they all occurred about 25 times in Psalm 119, how important God's word is in our uh, being in God's word for the development of our spiritual maturity. And so uh, there's a lot of information, a lot of details just in Psalm 119, a lot of those commandments in this instruction manual that God has given to us. And so the question that I'm asking today is, is there one thing that kind of stands above everything else? Is there one thing that sums it all up? And we've already given it away with the children's sermon. But we're going to really study deeply the whole concept of love again. And in case you're thinking to yourself, well, he just preached on love, you know, three months ago, or if you even remember that. Um, yeah, the Bible repeats it over and over and over and over again because we need reminding. It is not only super important, but it's super hard to do. And we forget it so quickly. So we're going to revisit that as we turn to 1 Timothy. Now, just a little background. When you come to the T section of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd, Hybrid, by the way, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, the five books that begin with the letter T, these are called the pastoral epistles because the Apostle Paul's writing all of them to either Timothy or Titus, who were young pastors in important churches that Paul had to leave as he continued either to go to prison or to do his missionary work. And so he, that's why they're called that, the pastoral epistles. He's teaching them how to be a good pastor, teaching them how to deal with some of the issues of church life. Now, 1 Timothy is written... On Paul's third missionary journey, if you look at a Bible map, you'll see where he traveled in his various journeys. On his third missionary journey, he comes to Ephesus, and this is after his first imprisonment. So when we study Philippians, he's in prison for the first time in Rome. He gets out of prison that time, does another missionary journey, and he's going to leave Ephesus and go to around the lake, around the sea to Macedonia. And you, you see that in the first couple of verses. So he leaves Timothy behind to shepherd the big and growing important church in Ephesus. And Timothy's young, and some people aren't paying him much respect because they, because they think he's too young to be a pastor probably. So let's go to verse 3 and begin. As I urged you, I'll stop right there. Urge is the Greek word parakaleo, which we talk about a lot. I want to get remind you of that urge. Sometimes in James, it's it's uh, translated uh, uh, either to persist or endure. Um, To come alongside someone, para, be called alongside someone and tell them what they need to hear. But the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He'd be the urger. And so the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, 
young pastor who I leave behind, I come alongside you, put my arm around you, and I need to tell you something. This is why I left you behind. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus. Now, number one on your outline, we're going to see next the reason for remaining. Why did Paul leave him behind? Why didn't he travel with Paul as he had done so many times before and he wanted to do? But Paul said, no, you're going to stay behind for now. The reason is this. Look right in the middle of the verse. Look at those those important words in order that. When you see that, then you see how it connects the thought together. I left you behind in Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So he says, the reason I left you behind is for letter A, instruction. And this word's going to show up again in verse 5, which is our main verse for today. So I want you to understand what this word means. I think it's interesting to look at how the Greek puts it. So rather than parakaleo, alongside call, this word is paraangalia. What word do you see in angalia? Angel. An angel is a messenger from God. That's what the Greek word means. So what this means is, and it's translated instruction here, sometimes it's commandment. It, It is used as a military term at times, I'm told. Charge, instruct. What this means is, and this is happening every time instruction is going on. This is happening right now. This is what I'm doing. This is what's happening when you're doing your devotions. The Holy Spirit is doing that through his word. This is what's happening when you're listening to a podcast or another uh, sermon by somebody. This is what's happening in a Bible study. When the leader says, okay, let's do this or that or look at this. This is instruction. It's coming alongside someone and announcing to them something that they need to know from God. And so Paul says, Timothy, I left you behind at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrines. Yesterday I was trying to find my way someplace up in the Twin Cities, and I was given an address, and I I just pushed it, and Google Maps came up, and then it took me someplace, and then it had me going around in a one-mile circle forever, and so I tried to make some calls, and they gave me the same address, but they gave me a name that went with it, and so I punched that in, and it took me a a totally different place. And then, same address, same exact address, but a different place. So I was getting mixed signals. Some, thank God that we have good instructions, and there are bad instructions. And we are supposed to, of course, be always instructing people. And parents, you're doing it to your children all the time. See your job is putting your arm around them and giving them a message to announce to them that this is the right way to do things. This is what love is all about, for instance. And so at the very end of verse 3, so the first thing he leaves them behind for is instruction. The second thing is to to instruct these men not to teach strange doctrine. So that is, letter B, to prevent... Different teaching. Strange sounds like really weird or bizarre, but that's not necessarily the problem. It's just different. 
and that the Greek word is hetero. Heterosexual is is opposite sex. Um, so hetero is different. Didasco, we think of didactic things, which are teaching things. So didasco is the Greek word for teaching. So different teaching, different from what? So what should we be looking for in church? What if I get up here and I say something that you think, uh, that's different from what I've ever heard before. That, that's strange. Um, what are we looking for? Different from what? What's our comparison made to? Different from what? I didn't bring a bulletin up here, but look at your bulletin. The front, uh, the, the, the opening page of your bulletin with the order of service on it. Do you see at the top what we've had in there for years? Acts 2.42, what the church is supposed to be continually devoted to. It was at the beginning, and we are an apostolic church if we do the same thing today. What are we supposed to be continually devoted to? First of all, the apostles' teaching. Where did the apostles get their teaching? Jesus. Where did Jesus get his teaching? Jesus. He's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. And God's truth that we read about in the Old Testament was embodied when Jesus came to the earth. And then he called his 12 apostles and he imparted to them his teachings. And then he left and he sent his spirit so that his spirit continued to instruct them. The parakaleo, the paraclete, instructed them. And what they wrote down is the apostles' teaching, which are the teachings of Jesus or the teachings of God. And therefore, anything different from that is to be avoided. So prevent different teaching. I'll come back to it in a little bit. And then letter C, look at verse 4. Not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the administration of God which is by faith. I've called this letter C to avoid distraction. Maybe you're the kind of person... I kind of was when I first became a Christian while I was less mature than I am today. I'm not saying I'm mature, but I was a lot less mature, believe it or not. And I would get a little bit intrigued by weird, uh, different things. I wanted the truth, so that part was good. But the, the danger of that when you don't understand a lot is you get a little information, and that makes you kind of dangerous because then you sort of can get off on tangents like I did. And, and you know what it's like to visit with somebody who just, they just, they're so intrigued by something that's not that important and really obscure, kind of obscure in the scriptures. You're reading through Genesis right now. When it comes to, there are portions of Genesis I don't understand. Nobody understands. Who are the Nephilim? When the sons of God saw the, the, the daughters of men, and then they had offspring, and they were really big. Who are they? Were they angels? Were they, there's all kinds that nobody knows. There's lots of discussion about that. People can think they know the answer. They don't. Okay? So should, how much time am I going to spend preaching on that one? None. I'll use it as an illustration as 
a different teaching. When someone comes and says, well, it's this way, and this is right, and, and it can cause division in relationships and division in church. And that's just an example of things that we can see in the Bible, and I'm not sure how they fit together. When I get to heaven, I'm going to say, Jesus, okay, I've got the main part of the puzzle, I think, pretty much put together, but could you explain the Nephilim? That one way out here in the periphery. I mean, it's, it's not in the bullseye. It's, I'm not even sure it's in the personal conviction. If it is, it's toward the edge of that crossing over into, into personal preference. So just be careful with that kind of stuff. We want to avoid being distracted by things that are not that important. I don't know about you, but life is so busy, there's not time for us to pursue every rabbit trail. There's not time for us to discuss things that are not of, of critical importance, right? We're here to accomplish God's work for us. And I'm looking at you parents of young children, and I'm looking at you some of us older folks, now you're dealing with health issues along with other stuff. And everybody's got their stuff. And there just isn't time to be distracted by different teaching in the church. In Paul's day, and I won't go into any of these because it doesn't matter. You can read between the lines and see that he was dealing with an early form of Gnosticism. Okay, big word, but there, there were... Different teachings creeping into the church. He, Judaism. The Jews were saying they were not understanding well how a Jew becomes a Christian and then what you're supposed to do with the Old Testament law. Paul dealt with that all the time. He was dealing with asceticism that shows up later in this letter that people were saying you shouldn't marry or you shouldn't eat these kinds of foods. Um, do you notice what all those words had at the end of them? Judaism. Asceticism. Gnosticism, any ism, what do isms do? Cause schisms, and that's why we want to avoid them. If you're, if, if you're going to attach yourself to a camp of some sort with an ism at the end, just be careful. Hold on to it loosely and humbly. You might not understand it all. We'll come back to, well, let's look at verses 6 and 7. What motivated these people who were discontented and dissatisfied and sometimes perhaps rebellious. Well, look at verse 6 and 7, and I've, I've called this number 2. We're given the motive of the malcontents. I don't want to be a malcontent. We can become dissatisfied with the the ministry that God has given to each one of us. You know, you've got your home, you've got your children, you've got your responsibilities, you've got your job or whatever it is that your life looks like right now. You have your stuff and your things. And it is so easy to be discontent with that, to think this is boring, this is mundane, this is hard. And our minds can drift into some of these different teachings and different thoughts and we can get really distracted. Well, let's look at the motives of these malcontents. Verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, what things? The things we're going to talk about in a moment. Some men straying from these things, and literally, literally it says missing the mark. So what they've done is they've shot their arrow 
at the target. They think they're going for the truth. They've released the arrow, and it's gotten off uh, trajectory. And it's landed someplace up in the maybe the personal conviction, maybe the personal preference area of just something they just want to talk about. So let's continue on to see their motives. Some men, missing the mark regarding these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. It's a waste of time. Verse 7, and here's their motive. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They don't know what they're talking about. They've got, like I said, a little bit of information. just enough to be dangerous. And now they're the expert. And they want everybody else to believe what they believe. These, these people or people like us, when we're acting this way, we're the ones who cause problems in churches. We're the ones who cause division. Okay? And he says that the motive then is what? Look at verse 7. The key word there right at the beginning of verse 7 is wanting. Wanting to become teachers. So I have self-service as the motivation. And if, if you start going down a road, and we're going to give you the criteria to measure it by, but if you start going by, down a road and, and you realize after this sermon that uh, I'm a little off track, or I was off track, or I'm, I don't want to get off track, the whole key is going to be identifying what you want. Identifying, as James puts it, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, you want something, you desire something, and you do not get it, so you commit murder. And you're envious and cannot get what you want. You're envious of somebody else because they're getting what they want. And so you fight and you quarrel. Uh, back in chapter 3 of James, James has a lot to help us with this passage, but in the, at the beginning of chapter 3, James says, what does he say about teachers? These guys want to be teachers. They don't want to just believe something and have some questions about it. They want to propagate it. What does James say about being a teacher? He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. So don't rush into wanting to propagate this fanciful, different teaching that's different from... If it's different from what the Apostles' Creed says, be cautious, okay? Many people have gone out trying to, trying to say that the Trinity, for instance, is not uh, true, it's not biblical, it's not the right way to understand who God is. Many people have tried that and they've, gone sh- they've become shipwrecked. That, that's just kind of, it's a hard one to understand, but it's there in the Bible. If you study it, if you're open-minded and you really study how God has revealed himself to us. But many people have tried that one. And if you go to most pseudo-Christian groups that I could name, I won't right now, but, but they're, they're, they have a different teaching than what we have, than what the Bible has. Uh, they're almost always coming up with some Novel idea that challenges what has been taught by the, by the church, the apostolic church, from the beginning. What does the Bible clearly teach? 
to compare the attitudes of of a person who's just kind of wanting to be humble and open and gracious toward others and and holding their convictions kind of loosely because they're still learning that kind of humble attitude to contrast that go over to chapter 4 for just a moment i want to show you chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 real quickly So this is Paul continuing to to instruct Timothy. He said, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. They'll still call themselves Christians. So that doesn't mean they'll become Buddhist. It means they're Christians who have fallen away from the faith and they're teaching something different. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Ooh, that sounds harsh. That sounds like, you know, voodoo and we'll, we'll go out and start sacrificing people to the gods. No, it's not that, it's not that blatant. Jesus does, I mean, uh, Satan does it much more subtly in the church. He, he'll begin to teach something that, okay, um, boom, just went bang. Let me see. What I'm doing here. I have no idea what to do. All right, let's keep going. Um, Thank you, Craig, for dealing with that. Paying no attention to the man standing over here. (laughs) Keep listening to me. It says doctrines of demons. We're in chapter 4, verse 1. Let me get you back here. Verse 2. We got it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're letting chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So uh, deceitful spirits, they pay attention to deceitful... Do you think deceitful spirits are trying to work in your life? Do you think so? You bet they are. Do you think he's trying to work in in this church? Yeah, because he's working in every single one of us deceitful spirits, and doctrines of demons. That does not mean something that would be so obvious. It it can be very, very subtle, but it's driven by, and I'll quote James here in a moment again, it's driven by something that's inside a person that they want for themselves, self-service. James says, uh, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, again, envy of somebody else, like, oh, they're, they're, they're getting more attention than I am, or people think they're really smart, but I'm smart. Um, so if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your heart, something you want for yourself, that's what these guys want. If you have selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. This wisdom is earthly, natural, comes out of your flesh, demonic. So it's, it's as simple as that. So just watch yourself and watch your brothers and sisters. And if someone is coming at you with some weird stuff or some, just, it's just different from what the Bible clearly teaches, then you can instruct them. You can put your arm around them and just say, hey, 
let's focus on this. Why, why don't we just kind of put our attention on the things that are, that are clearer than that? that? That's a little hard for me to understand. Um, and I, I really don't want to spend time talking about it much. Okay? But that can cause division. So, here's the big question for this morning. What is the goal of Christian teaching? What is the goal of my sermons? What is the goal of parents, what you are teaching your children as you raise them up in the ways of the Lord? What is the goal for our Sunday school teachers now that Sunday school is underway once again? What is the goal of a Bible study that you attend, our Wednesday morning men's group? What's the goal? Why? Well, so that we go to heaven when we die? Yes, that's one of the goals. That we become more like Jesus? Yeah. That we please God? Yeah. That we do things God's way? Yes. That would that then makes us happy and we can live happy? Yes. What's one word that Paul gives us right here, as we go back to our passage, verse 5, What's one word that Paul gives us? What is the godly goal? And it's right in verse 5. So I'm just going to say it the way Paul says it. The godly goal is love. It wraps up everything that's good in everything that I just mentioned is wrapped up in love. Jesus said love the Greatest, first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. This sums up the law and the prophets. This sums it all up. So look at the diagram up above. <clears throat> love. Now I'm borrowing these three phrases from Ken Boa. He's the guy that spoke at the conference we were at recently before Thanksgiving. And he just does a nice job of of using letters of the alphabet and using words to, to kind of help us remember these things. And there's that illustration that we use frequently of the cross with the circle around the, the, inner, the intersection between the two of them. The three kinds of so many things that we talk about, but concerning love, vertically, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love God completely. Then inwardly, if I'm loving God completely, we're told that before we can love others, we're told to love others as we love ourselves, right? Now that's a frequently abused Bible verse. Because that I've heard people say many times, but I first have to love myself. So in a self-centered type of mentality, first got to worry about me. Once I take care of me, then I can figure out how to... Well, there's some truth to that, but there's some bad stuff in there too. And I like what Ken Boa says, that we have to learn to love ourselves correctly. Should we love ourselves? Yes. Should we appreciate how God has made each one of us individually? Yes, of course. But we have to love ourselves correctly. We can't love ourselves as the center of the universe or love ourselves as, in essence, God and the king of our own little kingdom, that's loving ourselves incorrectly. We're seeing ourselves for someone we aren't. But to love ourselves correctly, seeing ourselves as created by God, to be a vessel of his grace to others, to worship him, 
to love him with all that we are. Once we understand who we really are and love ourselves correctly, then we'll be able to horizontally love other people compassionately because then we'll be able to understand a little more where they're coming from. We can see who we are. We can put ourselves in their shoes and we can say, we can understand and have compassion for them in whatever they're going through. So we can love them rightly. Great illustration. I hope that's helpful for you as it has been for me. Now, the end of verse 5 tells us where this love must come from. I've called this the sole source. The sole source of, of godly love. Look at verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love. And then he lists three things. From love that flows out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So first of all, let's consider a pure heart. Letter A. What does it mean to have a pure heart? Do you remember in Psalm 119 last week, familiar verses, verses 9 and 11? How does a young man keep his way pure or how does a young man cleanse his way? And it applies to all of us. So we could say, how does a person, if Jesus said in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are happy, the happy person has a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. A pure heart helps us see God without any obstructions. Over in chapter 6 of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and he's not talking about eyesight, he's talking about spiritual sight. He said, if your eye is good, healthy, clear, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If the stuff that you think is true and isn't, if you're following after some different teaching because there's something in it for you, something you want to get out of it, your eye is bad. And if the light that is in you is actually darkness, how great is the darkness? It's going to be really hard for you to mature. Because you're going to get stuck there. You're stuck in yourself. And so we want to get rid of that. And Psalm 119, 9 and 11 says, How does a person then cleanse his way? How do you go further down this path with a machete and start hacking away all of the brush and the weeds and the things that are, that are blocking your clear vision of where the path is really going? How do you do that? How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to God's word. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So back to last week's message. Be in the word. Let God's word train your, train your mind so that when you're confronted, rather than go the way you've gone a million times, you say no. God's word says this and then change your behavior, change your mind, New neural pathways, all that stuff to create a new habit so that you are staying on the path. But that's how we purify our hearts with God's word. That's what's happening as I preach. So a pure heart. So just ask yourself quickly, 
Can you identify areas of your life where your heart is not pure? I hope you can. I mean, I could give you, I won't, but I could give you a list of things that I know for sure that I struggle with. And I'm sure you do too. And I hope you're that far along. But look for that when you pray. Look for that when you're in the Word. Lord, show me, where is my heart not right? When you're looking at a biblical example of somebody that does something wrong, say, how am I like that? When you're reading a negative command in Proverbs or something, say, that's me. How is that me? And then use God's word to renew your mind and then cleanse your heart in that area. That should be a continuous thing, a daily thing for us. Secondly, a good conscience. A good conscience. Uh, does your car beep at you when, when something's wrong? Does your car make noises when something's wrong? Something is built into the, the newer cars that they tell us. If a certain amount of weight in the passenger seat of our front seat, a certain amount of weight on that tells the system, the inner system, that somebody's there and they better have their seatbelt hooked up. And if not, you're going to hear about it. If there's a door open, you're going to hear about it. If the tire is a little bit low, you're going to hear about it. There's this thing built into the cars, an inner system that is so sensitive that the slightest thing will trigger it and say, something's wrong, something's wrong. That's what our conscience is. God has created human beings with this wonderful conscience that tells us we're always judging. We're always, this is right, this is wrong, that's right, this is wrong. We're always doing that. The problem is, sometimes our conscience is bad because we've trained it poorly and we've done it wrong. Love can't flow out of a bad conscience because you're all twisted up in your thinking. And you can't do what's best for the other person because you're still worried about what's best for you. And so, again, a good conscience is one that literally just functions properly. It functions appropriately because it's been trained rightly. So that's another one of our goals of, of God, allowing God's word to purify our hearts and to cleanse our consciences so that it can be good and function the way God intended it to. I mean, I could go on, I won't, for hours on what our culture is doing right now, twisting consciences, and how... Over in chapter 4, verse, look at verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. This is great. This is what happens when you do it wrong. This is what happens when you go off track and you miss the mark and you do it your own way. This is what's happening in the world today. Verse 2. By means of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It's so uh, dulled that they can't even tell. I could, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's like what, what? That's illogically, utterly, inconceivably irrational and ridiculous. But their consciences are so seared; they think it's true. That's the world we're living in. That's the world we are called to be Christians in, in 2023. 
in a world that is absolutely seared in their consciences as a, like with a branding iron. But for that's not us. We want a pure heart and a good conscience functioning the way God designed it to. And then finally, and un, literally, uh, it says a, something about a sincere faith, but it's unhypocritical. Unhypocritical faith. Now this, to have an unhypocritical faith, see if I say, which I know many people who do, they're friends of mine. I just got a Christmas card for one, I don't even want to open it. I don't want to see the pictures. Because I know what, what they believe. And, and they think they're Christians. They belong to a Christian church that teaches this kind of stuff, this other bizarre, different teaching. And uh, so it's hypocritical to say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, and yet Jesus said this, but I'm going to believe this. I reject what Jesus says about that. Well, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? (laughs) You'll keep my commandments or you don't love me. And so an unhypocritical faith is one that would then actually trust in God and trust in God's word enough so that when we hear his instruction, we just believe it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Lord, help me do it. But I'm not going to stray from the truth. So keeping it, here's what we try to do at this church. Keep it simple. Keep it clear. Keep it explicit. Keep it obvious. Focus on that. So that the goal of our of all of our instruction, whether it's teaching from the pulpit or in Sunday school or just in private counseling or one-on-one brothers and sisters in Christ counseling one another, instructing each other, putting our arms around each other, in all of that, the goal of that is love. And that can only come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unhypocritical faith. So... As I close, the, I, I toyed a little with the title, The End of Love, wanting to intrigue you. <gasps> There's no more love? No. The end of everything that we do, the goal, because that's what the word he uses, is actually end. The end result is love. And so as you bow your heads together and, and as you think about how this new year is going to proceed in your life, As we move forward as a church family, there are various ministries, there's all kinds of work of the Spirit going on, all beyond what we could, can understand how God is working in the gifts and by the Spirit in His church. We can only see a fraction of it. But God is at work here. And so... Uh, just ask yourself, how does what I do result in love? Does it result in love? Do I even care that it results in love? And I'll close with the titles of a couple songs that I remember from growing up. The Doobie Brothers profoundly asked the question, without love, where would you be now? What's the answer? 
nowhere. And then the song I dislike very much, but what has love got to do with it? What's the answer? Everything. Everything. So can we, as we proceed now through 2023 together, can we always have that the goal of our instruction is love? And we have to understand that so that we can love God completely, love ourselves correctly, and then with a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith, we can love other people compassionately because we can really put ourselves in their shoes and we can say, I can relate to where they're coming from. And so I'm going to be careful with how I proceed here so that I'm really demonstrating love. If we do that, boom, the Holy Spirit's going to just continue to flourish and grow us, mature each one of us individually, mature us as a church, use us in so many ways. So let's bow our heads together.